If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Psalm 1. As you're turning there, I'll just uh, note, uh, this is the first sermon in a new series on the Psalms that will go um, every summer for the foreseeable future. Um, So we're going to do like one through eight this summer, and then next summer we're going to pick up at nine, uh, and hopefully like 15 summers from now, uh, we will conclude with uh, 150, uh, although Psalm 119 might get like a whole summer on its own, so we'll see how that goes, but... Uh, Anyway, so that's kind of what we're doing. Um, That's kind of our plan uh, for the next 15 years, Um, and uh, should be good. Uh, But this is uh, God's Word for us today. This is Psalm 1. This is an amazing psalm, and it's God's Word for y'all and for me this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives Away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray and ask God for his help to understand this this morning. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out uh, what it means to follow you or what we should believe, but you've given us your word. And we thank you this morning for Psalm 1. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that you would show us our hearts and that you would show us the life that Jesus is shaping in us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Every day, we are bombarded with images of the good life. This is entirely the purpose of advertising, to show you an image of something desirable, of a good life, so that you will buy more stuff. We are led to believe that if you buy the latest iPhone, you will suddenly have really attractive, interesting friends and lens flares just happening all around you. It's amazing. It's supposed to be a picture of a good life. We are all animated by some vision, some desire of a good life. And that's really what Psalm One is about. It is painting us a picture of the good life. And we know that because it opens by saying, Blessed is the man. And that word blessed in Hebrew doesn't just mean sort of a religious idea of being blessed, but it can also be translated as happy. But it's it's painting this picture of the good life. The good life comes to the man who does what the rest of Psalm 1 tells us. 
And what we're going to see here in Psalm 1 is we're going to look at this in three different chunks. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at what the good life is. In uh, verses 3 and 4, we're going to look at what the good life looks like. And in verses 5 and 6, we're going to talk about why does it matter? Why does the good life matter? So here we go, jumping in, verses 1 and 2, what the good life is. Uh, I'm going to start actually by looking at what the good life is not, which is actually where Psalm 1 also begins. The good life is not the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. And here's just another aside. When the Bible says the man, that doesn't just mean men. Um, That is uh, inclusive of men and women. Um, That's just how the uh, translators translate this word, which was generically used for groups of people. So the good life is not the person who walks in the counsel of the wicked, nor who stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, it's important to note, these are not three different groups. Um, There's not three kinds of people we are commanded to avoid here. These are actually describing a similar way of living. And it's a way of living that is described in Proverbs 19, verses 25 through chapter 20, verse 1. There it describes what a scoffer does. A scoffer is a person who is opposed to God. A scoffer is a person who goes their own way, who is stubborn, who doesn't listen to teaching, and who mocks even the idea of justice, who does not pursue what is right and does what is wrong. This way of living that Psalm 1 begins by saying the good life is not is a picture of a person who does whatever they want to do and stubbornly resists correction. But verse 2 introduces us to a different kind of person. And it's important to note that what makes this person different is not that they are more moral. It's not that they are better behaved than other people. What makes this person different, what this picture of the good life is, is that this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. That word law there in the Hebrew is Torah. Uh, And Torah doesn't just mean rules, but it really means all of God's instruction. So that would include rules, but it would also include stories and anywhere in the scriptures that are teaching us and expressing the character of God. This is reminding us, in fact, that all of the scriptures are instruction from God. So this person's delight is in the instruction they are receiving from the Lord. And on that instruction, this person meditates day and night. And the word meditates there uh, also kind of has this interesting uh, connotation. It's it's not just meditating like we might think of meditating uh, in our current cultural moment. It's this idea of kind of ruminating, of just thinking about it. 
thinking about God's instruction, thinking about God's teaching, thinking about what the Lord wants from us as his people. It's like, it's like chewing on it. Uh, ruminating even kind of means like cows, you know, they sort of throw up grass and then chew on it for a while. Sorry, my wife was like, no. <laughs> That's the idea here. It's like kind of even like muttering to yourself throughout the day, uh, maybe not out loud, um, what, what God wants from us. Friends, this is the picture of the good life. The picture of the good life is a posture of receptivity, of openness of teachability. The good life is a life in which we are teachable. It's it's a life where we start each day with the conviction that we have something still to learn. We start each day with the conviction that we still have room to grow, that there is sin in our lives and sin in our hearts of which we are unaware or of which we only see apart. And friends, this is important for us to note because this is not about how much you know. Delighting in the law of the Lord doesn't mean that the people who know the most about the Bible are the ones who are closest to God or the ones most living this good life. This is about not what you know, but the posture of your heart. This is about a teachable heart, an eagerness to learn about delighting in instruction from God. And so whether you've been following Jesus forever or whether you are brand new to the Christian faith, this posture is available to you. It is about learning to be teachable and receptive to what God is instructing us to believe, and to do. And because a good life, the good life as summarized here in Psalm 1, because it has so much to do with teachability, with delighting in God's instruction, the moment you believe that you have arrived, the moment you believe you have nothing left to learn or nowhere left to grow, You take a step in the counsel of the wicked. You stand in the way of sinners. You sit in the seat of scoffers. There's a couple of ways it looks when we decide that we have nothing left to learn. One of the ways is stagnation. And that's where you just sort of get to a certain point and you decide... That's good enough. I'm done trying. You've all met people like this. And if not, you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table with people like this. Right? These are the people that you're like, hey, that's just that's just grandpa. Like that's just what he does. Like we're not gonna talk about this. We're not gonna expect grandpa to deal with this. Grandpa's just gonna be grumpy about about stuff. Maybe it's not grandpa. Maybe it's grandma. (laughs) Everyone's like frowning. It's like you're talking bad about grandparents. I'm not talking bad about grandparents, but, but you know what I mean. You've met someone who decided that they had sort of grown enough and they were done trying to grow any further. And I'm saying that is not an option for living a good life. 
The other way this looks is not just stagnation, it's not just stopping trying, but people actually become resistant to the growth that they need. And it's not just that they stay where they are, but people sometimes actually require others to pretend that they are different than they are. And friends, this is also difficult because this means you are requiring other people to deal with reality on your behalf because you are stubbornly resistant to growth. It's not just that you're not trying, you are actively resisting the thing that God might be calling you to do, to finally give up the anger, to finally let go of the bitterness. Friends, when we don't do that, we become actively destructive to ourselves, actively destructive to others. Because the good life, as Psalm 1 is showing us, means that we are teachably submissive to God's instructions, stagnation and resistance to growth are not options for God's people. The good life is teachable submission to God's instruction. So what does that look like? Verses 3 and 4 show us what it looks like. Verse 3 shows us that the good life looks like flourishing. Like a tree that has been planted by water. It yields its fruit and its season and its leaves don't wither. This is a picture of vitality and a picture of life and a picture of flourishing. And we have to say this and we have to mean it and we have to emphasize it and we have to do all of that because we live in a world. We live in a culture that thinks that law or instruction or restraint actually diminishes life. That accepting limits, that not doing some things, or that living your life according to a particular vision of what is good and righteous and holy, that that doing that somehow makes you less alive than you would otherwise be. But what Psalm 1 shows us is that delighting in God's instruction, delighting in God's law, actually is the basis of flourishing. The great theological text, the Jesus Storybook Bible, says that the law is how life works best. You see, a posture of teachability to God's instruction doesn't make us less alive. It makes us more alive. And friends, this makes sense. It makes sense because the law and God's instruction, God's word reveals God's character. And we are made in the image of God. So when we live in delight of God's word, when we are open to instruction from God's word, we are doing what we were made to do. We are being what we were made to be, which means we are more human. We are more authentically ourselves when we delight ourselves in God's instruction. And that's why in verse 4, the picture of the wicked is chaff. 
Uh, I described to the kids the process of winnowing where you uh, would gather up all the grain in a pile in the ancient world and you would get a fork. And on a day with a slight breeze, you would go into the pile and you would throw it up in the air and the chaff would blow away and the grain, which was heavier, would fall back down. And you would do that all the time. And that's an image that the Bible uses again and again to describe the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And maybe the closest thing I can... uh, remind you of uh, where you might experience something like what chaff is, if you're not a a grain farmer, uh, is leaf season. Uh, When we lived uh, in North Carolina, uh, we had a wooded lot that just had trees everywhere. And I had to rake like twice a week for three months. It was terrible. So I got tired of that. And I decided, you know what, I've got a riding mower and I've got time. So I decided I was going to um, drive and mow my leaves until they were powder. And I spent two and a half, three hours mowing my leaves, just chopping them up finer and finer. And then by the end of the day, they were gone, basically. But I was just covered in this like fine powder. It's probably half an inch thick. It was just, it was disgusting. Uh, It was not worth it. Uh, The leaf blower and the rake were much better options. That's the picture here of chaff. It's just dried up. It's worthless. It has no practical uh, purpose. It's dry and lifeless and dead and useless. And so what you see in this contrast is you've got this tree that is the picture of life and vitality and flourishing versus this picture of something that's dry and dead and lifeless and and useless. And verses 5 and 6 tell us why that distinction matters. It tells us why we should even care about the difference between the good life and a life that is not good. Because what the psalm does is it concludes in verses 5 and 6 is that it notes that righteousness and wickedness are not just different kinds of people. And it's not just about different quality of life. These are categories of ultimate importance. Verse 5 reminds us that God will ultimately judge every person. Verse 6 reminds us that the righteous are gathered together to God and the wicked perish. And perishing sounds harsh. But again, it makes sense because the wicked have chosen a life cut off from the very source of life itself, God. C.S. Lewis captures this really beautifully in his book, The Great Divorce, where he says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. It's a picture of righteousness, of wickedness, of judgment, of life, of perishing. Judgment is probably my least favorite thing to preach about. But let's just do it. Let's just lean in for a minute. And think about judgment in the Bible. And here is my argument. Judgment is good news and you long for it. 
Judgment is good news, and we long for it. Because what judgment ultimately means is that evil is exposed and evil is defeated. Judgment means war is over. Abuse of people is done. Cover-ups and corruption are exposed and put to an end. Racism is gone. Environmental destruction is terminated. Human trafficking and exploitation is over. These are all things we rightly hate and we long that they would be judged and removed from this world. But there's a problem. God hates sin and evil more than we do. God hates it more than we do. One author notes, we say that we hate war and want war to be ended, but God hates anger. And he is going to... Why does this happen every week now? Sorry. God hates anger. We hate war. God hates anger. We hate sex trafficking. God hates lust. We hate environmental destruction and corporate corruption. And God hates greed. We hate big sin done by other people. And God hates all sin. We want to prune back sin and evil. But God's judgment is his promise to come and not just prune evil back in the world, but to actually rip it out of the world by its roots. The good news of judgment is bad news, though, for those of us whose hearts want to go our own way and stubbornly do our own thing. Here's the thing. That sounds kind of like me. I kind of like doing my own thing. I kind of like going my own way. And so just in complete candor and in complete honesty, I come to Psalm 1 and I feel a little ambivalent. I struggle coming to Psalm 1 because I'm thinking, do I delight in the instruction of the Lord? Do I meditate on the instruction of the Lord day and night? I mean, my delight, honestly, is kind of pitiful a lot of times. I frankly come to the Bible often out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of I have to do this, not out of a sense of delight, not out of a sense of, of longing to learn more from God. And, and meditation? I mean, man, I struggle with that. To, to reflect throughout the day on what the Lord might be calling me to do or what the Lord might be teaching me to do. I read Psalm 1, honestly, I feel condemned. Can anyone even live this vision of the good life? And friends, only one person ever has. Only one person ever lived this vision of the good life. Only one person ever truly delighted in the law of God and meditated upon the law day and night. And friends, that is Jesus. Isaiah 50 verse 4 tells us that Jesus awoke every morning to learn from his Father. Think about that. Jesus awoke 
to learn from his father. Christian, this is your God. He awoke to learn from his father. He walked in righteousness. He bore fruit. And instead of flourishing, Jesus took the full weight of God's judgment on the cross so that foolish and stubborn creatures who are stagnant and resistant to growth can be welcomed by the heavenly father as righteous. The law always leads us to Christ. That is one of its central functions, is to push us to our need for a Savior. But there's more here. There's more than just being reminded of our need. The point is not that Jesus does all of this stuff so that we don't have to. Jesus does not save us from delighting in God's law. He saves us to delight in God's law. Friends, that is our only hope for a good life. It's not that we can muster this up on our own, and that's not what Psalm 1 is calling us to do. It is telling us that Jesus lived this life, and he is shaping it in us, his people. In him we flourish. In him we bear fruit. In him we stand in the judgment and are gathered to our Heavenly Father when, it, when wickedness and evil are pulled out of creation by its roots. Friends, this is why Jesus says all throughout John's gospel things that sometimes don't make sense to us. Like when in John 10.10 10, he says that he came that we would have abundant life. He is conjuring up for us there this picture of life and vitality and flourishing like a tree planted by streams of water. And in John 15, which Matthew read earlier in the service, Jesus is there saying that apart from him, we can't do anything. We bear fruit in him. That verse is actually way cooler in the Greek because the Greek is fine with double negatives. So it actually says, Jesus says, apart from me, y'all can't do nothing. We bear fruit in Christ. Psalm 1 is not this aspirational thing for us to try to have this good life and to manufacture it on our own. Psalm 1 is the shape of the life that Jesus is forming in us. And friends, the very basis of that life is that Jesus perished like the wicked so that we can flourish like the righteous. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have shown us here what a good life looks like. And Lord, we pray that you would shape that life in us. Lord, we thank you that Christ perfectly fulfilled your law, perfectly fulfilled your will, and then died as if he was wicked so that we can be accepted as righteous. Father, even now, as we come to your table, we pray that you would do this work in us, shape this good life in us. Use this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us 
in the truth of Christ's work on our behalf and to shape us for the work he continues to do even this morning. Father, we pray all of these things for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.